What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And you're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies as we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. From Ken Adam to Max Zorin, with occasional detour down a few rabbit holes, and we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand, Eon, or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us on podcast jamesbondaz.co.uk. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. If you want to support the podcast, we have a coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash jamesbondaz, and you can find the link in the show notes. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast where M is for more. Sir Roger Moore, the third actor to play James Bond on the big screen. My name is Tom Butler and joining me as we explore the life and career of the actor who has played 007 the most times, it's the persuasive Mr. Brendan Duffy and the saint, saintly Mr. Tom Wheatley. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> This, you see what he's done, don't you? You see what I've done there. I've, I've just worked out what he's done. Right. Yeah, yeah, very smart. <laughs> this, obviously, um, he's a legendary actor, so he deserves a legendary episode. It will be a two-part episode, and this first half will cover Sir Roger's life and career, up to and including the James Bond films of the 1970s. And, unbelievably, with these episodes, we'll be wrapping up our specials that cover the six big-screen Bonds. Um, so that's quite exciting, but also... Yeah, quite incredible that we've managed to do all six of them now. It's uh, it's been quite a journey we've been on. Um, I'm I'm really excited to get stuck into into this one. I'm a huge fan. What about you two? Yeah, I'd probably say this is the one I was most excited about. Although actually going into the research of it is a little bit of a daunting uh, area mm. because there is where you look at somebody like uh, Connery, where there's not that many interviews and stories about Roger spoke to everyone. There's so many stories of Roger about. There's a lot. There's a lot to go on. And and also the fact there's four books. Uh, Gareth four books, yeah. Gareth Owen has also got a book about his relationship with him. Yeah, it's well documented, which makes does make it even more daunting because you've got so much to to choose from, and it's hard to pick the you know the good stuff. I mean, it's yeah. all good stuff, but it's hard to highlight put it in a highlight package like we're gonna try and do. I think. Well, we should probably apologise at this point. As I was researching it, I kept reading stories and thinking I just can't mention all of these. Mm. So. Yeah. If there's a story that we don't mention, it's not because we've actively chosen not to to put that. It's just we can't do 14 episodes on Roger. <laughs> yeah. Although well, I think we very much like to. Um, yeah, I think it's very, a very good point to make that this will be a fairly light touch on Roger's life and work. Because if we were to do, you know, in depth on Roger Moore's life and career, 
It would be a whole podcast series, right? You could do 50, yeah. 100 episodes on Roger Moore's life and his acting oh, yeah. roles. So uh, it will be a summary. And bear in mind, you know, we've done A View to a Kill. We've done Live and Let Die. We'll, for your eyes only, we will get to all of Roger Moore's Bond films in due course and cover those in detail um, at length. Um, so, yeah, I guess there's not much more to say rather than other than just to let's kick things off. Brendan. Absolutely. So Roger George Moore was born October 14th, 1927 to George and Lillian Moore. So George was a police constable and one of his responsibilities, just I found this interesting, was drawing accident scenes that were used in court as evidence. Mm. And then his mother, Lily, was a housewife. So growing up, he attended Battersea Grammar School, but he was actually evacuated in 1939 uh, he was sent to Worthing, and it, because of the war, war broke out, so they sent him there. He became homesick pretty quickly, um, and it, it affected him being separated from his parents. So he was sent back to London pretty soon. But, you know, no bombs had actually dropped on London by 1940. He'd been living in Chester with his mother, so he came back with his mum. They returned to London again, um, and then the Blitz happened. So... 1941, Roger goes off. Uh, and he goes off to Bude with two other evacuees and they stayed on a farm. He is said to have enjoyed his life there. He, he got to swim in rivers and he ate lots of apple and blackberry pies. And he speaks about pies quite a lot, actually. Pies do <laughs> seem to come up. Um, so, yeah, he was based in Bude and he attended Launston College he didn't enjoy going to that school. Um, he much preferred to uh, partake in the swimming and the eating of the pies. Uh, he said, I can't say that I liked Launceston College, possibly because I was expected to study hard. I wrote to my parents begging to come home and adding I would happily cycle all the way back to London as I only had sixpence and that would not buy a train ticket. So with that, they got the letter and they decided to bring him back to London. Um, also growing up, he had many different ailments and um, was quite an ill child. I read this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So mumps, measles, chicken pox. Um, he said, I nearly died of double bronchial pneumonia at the age of five. So they also he also had to be put under for surgery at the age of eight. Uh, he got an infection, so he had to... Um, be circumcised. Well, um, I didn't think we'd be going there, but hello. Well, we've got to go there. We've got to cover it all, haven't we? <laughs> um, well, all of the stuff I just talked about where we had to miss bits out. No, we're covering it all. Miss out. Yeah. <laughs> Infected penis <laughs> for five minutes. Very good. <laughs> Tonsillectomy, adenoidectomy, yellow jaundice. You know, he, he had it all. It was well, it's no quite... surprise that he was a hypochondriac later in life then, is it? Absolutely no shock, you know. If you've, if you've, yeah, if you've grown up, basically falling to bits and nearly dying, having all your bits chopped out, yeah, it, it, that, that makes absolute sense. And early on in his life, he also had uh, ambitions to be quite, uh, you know, work in art. So he he did leave school at fifteen, and he accepted a job as a trainee animator. Well, a little bit before then, when he was at school, or maybe just around that time, he designed a, a loads of uh, patriotic posters as part of an exercise that they did in class, along with uh, some cartoons. Apparently, he was heavily influenced by Disney cartoons at the time. Um, showed his dad. His dad really liked him. And as you mentioned, his dad was in the drawing world as well. So he showed them to a guy he worked with. And then... This guy, who's called George Church, he then showed them to uh, some people he knew in the an animation business uh, in films. So he was in, so his, him and his dad were invited to uh, PPP, which is the Publicity Picture Productions uh, company in Soho, uh, and they got a game a job. So as a fifteen and a half year old, uh, he was a trainee animator at PPP. Um, they and it was quite a big deal actually. It wasn't just like a little side job. He was enrolled uh, in the technicians' union. And it, it, it was really sort of a start of a career. He had loads of tasks there. He did pencil drawings, tracing on celluloid. I won't go into all the details. He goes into quite a lot of depth in um, 
in my words my bond about what he does in it uh he does he did title and advertising letter work um he did learn how to edit film and he talks about that being really important later on it was showed him how to manage timing and obviously that was quite important later on when he started working and producing films Another of his jobs was to carry cans of film from the offices to the headquarters at AK-1, uh, Army uh, Cinematography or Kinematography. Um, and that it's at this point that he met David Niven. I actually read, I, I spoke to you guys earlier and saying that it's, it's quite difficult. When, when you're searching for a lot of these stories from some of the older actors in Bond, it's quite hard to just sort of review whether it's accurate or not. And um, I, t- I think I read somewhere that David Niven had got in the job there, but he he, he he didn't. But he met him at while he was working there, um, and he was a technical advisor. So apparently, when he when he met Niven later on as an adult, he didn't remember ever meeting him. During this job, uh, he actually he got got a load of new duties. So collecting collecting these cans of rushes, uh, the process film uh, from the lab in North London, and delivering them, he had to get a taxi because the film was so volatile because it was nitrate it was um it wasn't allowed on buses and tubes so he had to get a taxi there and because of that he he had to get really early so he was late on a couple of occasions he says um and once once he just completely forgot to pick them up at all uh so they sacked him (laughs) so that was the end of his career in um trainee animation yeah interestingly um you mentioned the word my word is my bond it's worth mentioning he wrote four books uh about his life later on my my word is my bond bond on bond last man standing and at biento and they're well worth reading especially mm. when you imagine them in, in in roger's voice and you've also got the diaries as well uh, yes and the live and let die diaries as well which um yeah are well well worth a read interestingly i read that while he was at the animating uh company he earned a membership to the association of cinematograph and allied technicians and this basically was able enabled him later in life to to direct, um, and that led him on to direct an episode of The Saint and the Persuaders because I think it's quite a heavy sort of uh, unionized industry, and so without a card mm. you can't do it. But yeah, he earned that quite very very early age. But yeah, so in 1944, age 16, Roger was out of work, and this is when he said that he took up smoking, which he continued to do throughout his life until 1970 when he had. Uh, he felt quite ill. He had like bleeding lungs, and um, yeah, he switched to cigars at that point. Um, but it was this in this summer of 1944 that he found out about the film Caesar and Cleopatra, which was being made at Denham Studios. And this film starred Vivian Lee as Cleopatra, and was at the time the most expensive movie ever made with a budget of 1.3 million pounds. It, it it was a big flop actually when it came out, but it was massive. It had. Um, uh, over a hundred featured roles, and some of the scenes uh, required up to two thousand extras. And so Roger heard that they needed extras, went to the production office on Wardour Street, and offered his services. Um, so they took him on, and he was on set next day, being fitted for a toga for a background scene. So this film was being directed by a guy called Gabriel Pascal, but also um, by an Irishman called Brian Desmond Hurst. He his involvement in the film went uncredited but he was directing a lot of the the scenes as well possibly second unit stuff but it was Hurst apparently who spotted Roger as an extra so there's a lot of sort of hearsay and what actually happened here between Hurst and, and Roger Moore about how how he ended up offering him the chance to act but the way that Hurst remembers it is that Roger's father who you mentioned was a policeman he'd actually been to a burglary at Hurst's house and when he was on set one day with Roger he went up to Hurst, uh, introduced Roger and said that his son wanted to be an actor. And do you remember me? I came to your house when you had a burglary, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so he said to Roger, you know, if you're interested, I will help you uh, get ahead. He'd obviously had um, a good experience with his father. So he offered, um, he he said to his parents, to Roger's parents, if you'll support him, I'll help him to get into RADA. And so this guy... Brian Hurst, he paid Roger's Rada's fee, Rada fees and that he joined the drama school that autumn uh, shortly after turning 17. Before he did go to Rada, though, there were a couple more bits of extra work that he did. Uh, he did some background work on a film called Gaiety George and then also Perfect Strangers, which starred Robert Donat. Um, so his contemporaries at Rada included Lois Maxwell 
and a lady called Dawn Van Stein, who would later become Roger's first wife. And we'll discuss Roger's personal life in the next episode. He was married four times, amazingly. But at RADA, he did Shakespeare, uh, Pride and Prejudice, and also uh, some Noel Coward plays. One of his tutors talking about Roger's appearance in Henry V, he said, he speaks and moves badly, still terribly self-conscious. So... <laughs> There you go. But it's noted at this time, this is when Roger sort of lost his South London accent and learned how to talk posh. And talking about it later in life, he said, at RADA, we had to speak with what is called a West End actor's voice. They iron out all your imperfections, but I think it probably takes away people's individuality. Now, does that ring any bells with you two? Dalton. Dalton. When we covered Timothy Dalton, he went to RADA and he hated it. Because he said they tried to flatten you to rebuild you, which is utter rubbish. You shouldn't try to destroy someone's individuality. So I thought that was really interesting, the parallels between the two of them. Both of them mm. didn't really enjoy their time at RADA because of what it did to them, um, their personality. So there you go. So after he left RADA, he went into theatre. Um, and again, talking about it, he said, I did a couple of plays back in 44 and 45. Um, then I started a season of Shaw in Cambridge. But the army caught up with me and I was carted off to Bury St Edmunds for six weeks training. Yeah, so aged 18 and not long after the Second World War had finished, uh, he was conscripted for national service. National service, and my my knowledge of it is limited, but I think people were just called up to do like a stint of national service, weren't they, in the UK? Yes, and yeah, so he was commissioned into the Royal Army Service Corps as a second lieutenant. And he was an officer in the Combined Services Entertainment section. And I think similar to what happened to Lois Maxwell, isn't it? We've just covered yeah, that's her right, in Money that's Penny. Right. Yeah. Um, so he uh, became a captain and he commanded a little depot in West Germany uh, where he would look after the entertainers uh, for the armed forces that were passing through Hamburg, where he actually he also split his jaw open in a jeep accident. Ooh. Yeah, and they also took his appendix out while he was in Hamburg. So, again, those ailments are continuing. <laughs> Is there anything <laughs> left no. of him by this point? <laughs> so after three years, he went back and returned to acting. Yeah, so when he came back, he was trying to find work in acting, because obviously that was his, his focus. Um, but he didn't find it easy initially. Uh, Harb Gordon Harbord, who was an agent, uh, told him that he should attend auditions in uniform, <laughs> and which worked for Roger, because it was the only suit that he had at the time. Um, but he said that he struggled to get roles, so he was always too big, too young, or just out of character for the for the parts that he was going for. So he went back to speak to uh, Hurst, uh, who offered him a role on a film called Trotty True. But he did say that it's not going to come up for a few months, so he, he'd have to sort of find stuff to do in the meantime. Um, I don't know a lot about Trotty True, but it's a 1949 film. It's, it's like a musical comedy. Stars Gene Kent, James Donald, and, and Hugh Sinclair. So I'm not too sure what he sort of did in the meantime, but he he was also suggested that he he become uh, he be contract uh, material for the Rank Film Organization uh, over in Pinewood. Um, but the problem it was at the, at the time Rank was wasn't doing very well. It had quite a few flops, um, so they wanted to cut costs. And the only people that they would hire are the big names: uh, Dirk Bogard and uh, Kenneth Moore um, at the top of the at the top of the list. Uh, so he met with a chap called Jimmy Grant Anderson, um, who ran a theatre in Palmer's Green called the Intimate Theatre. I think this might cross over with what you said about Noel Coward Butler. But um, so he earned £10 a week as a sort of jobbing contracted actor there. Um, and he starred in, one of the things he started with Noel Coward's Easy Virtue, among other things. A few bits and pieces he was doing during that period. And then Trotty Chew came up um, where he was appearing alongside an uncredited Christopher Lee. Oh. Um, both of them being cast by uh, Hurst uh, as something that Roger calls stage door Johnnies. Are you familiar with this phrase? <laughs> no. I think no. I, I, I've not, I'm not entirely sure on what it exactly means, but I think it's just people that sort of just stand around, occasionally say the odd thing, but they're not really integral to the right, plot. Right, right. Uh, so he said about uh, Christopher Lee, 
There was a tall, dignified chap who informed me that if I had been in the services with him, I would have stood to attention. We did go on to become firm friends, but I never stood to attention. He was Christopher Lee. And then he just talks a little bit about being a stage door Johnny. He says, I was a stage door Johnny at the Gaty Theatre where, where Trotty True, played by Gene Kent, was appearing. I never had more than an I say or gosh by Jove. But over two months, it was about 30 days work at six guineas a day. So not a massive role for him, but quite probably quite big to be involved in that sort of level of production. Um, he then went on to do some other bits and pieces as well. His, apparently his first television appearance was in 1949 in The Governess by Patrick Hamilton, uh, which was apparently a live broadcast. And he played a part of, of a character called Bob Drew, but it's quite a minor part. Uh, other films as well uh, include something called Paper or- Orchid and The Interrupted Journey. Uh, he was in something called Drawing Room Detective, which is a TV show. And a couple more films, One Wild Oat and Honeymoon Deferred in 1951. But that wasn't all he did. Uh, he In the 1950s, he was a model as well. There's some quite good stories about his, his modelling work. Uh, apparently, he did a lot of stuff for uh, il- illustrative work for women's magazines. So he's always like the romantic hero in a, in a love story section, as well as it apparently featured as the doctor in Woman's Own magazine. <laughs> Uh, he, he also interestingly uh, he was the model for the illustrations of uh, David Niven's extracts of his autobiography around the rugged rocks. Ah, interesting. So he, he, yeah, he was the face of David Niven. And then uh, another thing he did was a knitting advertising campaign. Oh uh, yes. And he, yeah, and he says uh, then there were the dreaded knitting patterns for which in later years Michael Caine dubbed me the big knit. <laughs> <laughs> However, I I learned never to knock a knitting pattern. They kept the wolf from the door, and I was able to do more rep. Uh, there's it, it's loads of other bits and pieces too. So if, if you if you're really interested in his stories about those those years, then there's a lot more in um, his his first book. But the uh, yeah he did he did the adverts, but things like toothpaste. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's quite funny to read what he says about them. The pictures are great because you can see there he's got he's got really really good sort of movie star looks, hasn't he? Um, yeah. and I think what six foot two he was so really? yeah big lad big uh, yeah perfectly built for it yeah I just like the idea of Michael Caine making fun of him <laughs> are you going to do an impression with which one well both I just no, thought it was the big knit <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember to do my Caine impression yeah no I'm not we'll save that for the end you can do it as an extra on the uh, end of the podcast <laughs> Okay. We need to get uh, what's his name from Stella Street to do them because he's the definitive mm. uh, Roger Moore. Yes. Is it Phil Cornwell? Yeah. Um, yeah. If you haven't seen Stella Street, by the way, dear listener, please check it out because it's very, very funny. So as his acting career began to pick up, uh, he began to land roles in, in on Broadway um, and on American television. And so in 1953... Um, him and his new wife Dorothy Squires um, she was also an actor um, and a singer and she was a lot more successful at him at the, uh, than him at that point uh, they were setting up a home in Manhattan and he appeared in this uh, acclaimed play on Broadway um, it was his only appearance on Broadway actually called A Pin to See the Peep Show uh, and it was said to have had uh, when it was first performed to have had a major impact on the camp actually no it might be this version but it, it was said to have had a big impact on the campaign to abolish capital punishment it was about i think a woman who'd been executed for some murders that she didn't commit um, and the pa- play had actually been banned in uh, the west end by the lord chamberlain and had only played at a drama club in chelsea but when it moved to new york Roger landed a really key role in the play, thanks to Dorothy, who was sort of acting as his agent. She would be able to get the meetings with people because she was this famous star. But then she would push Roger for parts because, um, yeah, it really helped him to get his foot in the door. Um, So this play, A Pin to See the Peep Show, um, it opened in New York in September 1953, but it closed after just one show. And wasn't really sure what the reason was, but Roger wrote a piece for it for a newspaper. And it's quite a quite fascinating piece, actually. Um, but it was this high profile job doing this West, this Broadway play. Um, people say that where he really learned the power of promotion, of self-promotion and how he became such a good sort of person to, to, to post for photos and, you know, talk to the press. Um, and it was this raising of his profile combined with his work uh, on TV that led Roger to getting a screen test at MGM. 
uh, he took did the screen test and the studio took out an option on a contract. So they didn't offer him a contract, but they gave him they wanted the option to, to be able to give him a contract. So he returned to London uh, and he was in a romantic comedy play called I Capture the Castle. And he was in it for seven weeks. But he ended his run early when he got a telegram from MGM offering a contract telling him to get to Hollywood. They had movies to make. So he signed to MGM in April 1954 to make four movies within two years and his annual salary was $16,000. As part of this deal with MGM, the studio actually paid for Roger to have his teeth capped, um, which I thought was quite interesting. That was to safeguard his jawline against having teeth removed because his jawline was his, you know, his main feature, they thought. So they had his teeth capped to safeguard against that and it cost $2,000, which MGM then took out of his wages. So uh, they, uh, yeah, <laughs> no. I thought it was quite funny. That actually later came up because he got sued by his wife um, for the money that he earned or his first wife, I think. And he had to say, I've made no money because MGM took it all back. But yeah, the first movie he made was The Last Time I Saw Paris with Van Johnson and Elizabeth Taylor. Talking about it later, Roger said, I was pretty bad. His second movie was called Interrupted Melody, which is a biopic starring Eleanor Parker, as an Australian opera singer called Marjorie Lawrence. Um, and that play actually won the best screenplay at the Oscars that year. Uh, and he later said that Eleanor Parker um, was the best actress he ever worked with. Third film was The King's Thief, and he was a swashbuckling soldier. Uh, that film also starred David Niven, a name we will mention quite a lot on this, uh, on these Roger Moore specials. And then his th- fourth and final movie for MGM was a film called Diane, which starred Lana Turner and Pedro Armendariz, who would later ah. uh, appear in From Russia With Love as Karim Bey. So Roger Moore in this film played Henry II and he took the role from an actor called Edward Purdom because Lana Turner basically had a vendetta against this actor. <laughs> um, so she got him chucked off the film and Roger Moore was basically there ready and waiting and had his contract to fulfill so they just threw him into this role but Lana Turner later said that Roger was a delightful young man with a wonderful sense of humour which again is something we'll talk about a lot on this talking about Lana Turner Roger Moore credits her with teaching him how to kiss with passion but without the pressure on screen so there you have it so having completed his MGM contract he returned to the UK did briefly go back to America to appear in another Noel Coward TV play called The Happy Breed and then back in the UK, he did two weeks in a play called The Family Tree at a theatre in Worthing. Uh, but this would actually uh, prove to be one of his last appearances on the British stage for many, many decades. Uh, interesting, one of the people who saw this play was Peter Hunt, who would later become the editor on the James Bond films and the director on Her Majesty's Secret Service. But in December 1956, his life changed when he signed his first major TV deal. Yeah, he was contacted by Columbia and they wanted him to play the title role in a an adaptation of the novel Ivanhoe. Um, and so this would be a joint venture by America and the UK. It was going to be 39 episodes and it was about Sir Wilfred of Ivanhoe. So adaptation uh, set during the 12th century in the era of Richard the Lionheart. And so it was shot mainly in the UK, Elstree, and throughout Buckinghamshire, but also some of it was filmed um, because of that partnership with Columbia Studios Screen Gems. Uh, it was actually, yeah, shot as well in California. So it was aimed at kids, the sort of stuff that would be on now BBC One on Saturday night at six o'clock, I would guess, that sort of vibe. Um, and the pilot was actually shot in colour. Which you know, this it had a high budget con- compared to other sort of British kids' adventure shows of the same time. But I mean, you'd feel shortchanged because the pilot was colour, but then the rest of the episodes were shot in black <laughs> and white. So other so guest stars included Christopher Lee, Robert Brown, and Anthony Dawson. Ah, um, so lots of bon- Bond alumni there. Obviously, this was his first big break, really. So. He threw himself into this and did a, wanted to do a lot of the, the stunt work. That meant he ended up being kicked by a horse. Oh. He cut his hand on his sword. 
He suffered from three cracked ribs because of there was an over-enthusiastic supporting artist that um, lanced him. Oh, he was God. knocked unconscious with the with the flat of a battle axe when it smashed his skull. Luckily, he was wearing a helmet. So, yeah, again, why, am I, why have I got all the bits where he gets battered? <laughs> he's just getting... <laughs> he's falling to bits, isn't he? He said, I felt a complete Charlie riding around in all that armour and damn stupid plumed helmet. I felt like a medieval fireman. That that didn't stop there. So afterwards, he said, I stepped from a car at the stage door where a mob of teenagers surrounded me with an au- with autograph requests. I was smoking a cigarette and to, ha- and to have both hands free, I stuck it in my mouth. Suddenly, a teenage Cockney voice said, here, mate, let's have a souvenir. And my cigarette was pulled out of my mouth, taking a lump of lip with it. Oh, God. <laughs> at the same time, I felt a button go and the hand on my fly. My proudest possession was about to be produced for public examination. I hollered and fled. (laughs) (laughs) Unbelievable. So after this, he was concerned that he was 30 now and he was worried that this series might actually end up typecasting him. Um, And that was against the, the, you know, the, the fans that he was gaining from this, this series that he'd made. So Hollywood came a knocking again. Ivanhoe was massive though, wasn't it? I think. Yeah, yeah. My mum, yeah. my mum always used to sort of talk about Ivanhoe when she was. Um... It's it's definitely the sort of uh, thing that gets referenced a lot from parents, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, sure, I think it had like a, a theme tune that that uh, I'm sure my mum or dad have sang in the house a few times. <laughs> um, so yeah, after Ivanhoe, things started uh, heating up a little bit in the world of um, Hollywood. Uh, so Roger signed a long-term contract with Warner Brothers in 1958. Uh, I, I did. I've read that it was seven years, but I'm, I, I, I don't know if that it actually ended up lasting for seven years, because these things tend to change over time. Um, but he, in 1959, he took the lead role in uh, a film called The Miracle, which was a version of a play by Das Miracle, uh, a play called Das Miracle, and the part had been ta- turned down by Dirk Bogart which is quite an interesting story behind that. Um, so apparently the director, Irving Rapper, wanted Gene Simmons for the female lead and she wanted uh, Stuart Granger to play opposite her. Um, however, Rapper wanted Dirk Bogard, but Dirk Bogard didn't want to do it. So uh, he, Dirk Bogard apparently suggested that Roger Moore take the role, even though he'd never actually met him. And Roger says that he tried for many years to thank him but never managed to. So he said even even years later in the 70s, they used to uh, live quite close to each other in the south of France. Uh, and Tony Forward, who was Dirk's manager and partner, would never let Roger speak to him. Um, so he, he never got an opportunity to thank him for, for the initial uh, role, the big role. And he says that he was responsible for him being offered the role, the, the Warner's contract. So a bit of a sad story there. A bit of a strange one as well. Around that time, Moore was directed by uh, Hiller, Arthur Hiller, uh, in an episode of the television series The Third Man, which is based on the film, and it was called The Angry Young Man. Uh, other films around that time that he was in um, was a, one called The Sins of Rachel Cade or Rachel Sade in 1960. Um, I've never heard of it, uh, so I don't know too much about it. And then The uh, Gold of the Seven Saints in 1961. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's that period of Warner Brothers time. Coffee, medium sweet. Two medium sweet. Thanks for listening. We hope you're enjoying the James Bond A to Z podcast. Remember, if you want to support the show, we have a coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash James Bond A to Z, where you can buy us a coffee for just three pounds or for three pounds a month. Thanks for listening. Back to the show. What's the matter? I don't feel so good. I feel so sleepy. Is that all it does? As a part of his Warner Brothers deal, Roger was given the lead in a show uh, in 1959 called The Alaskans, playing a fur trapper and con man in the 1898 gold rush. 
Um, he made 36 episodes, 50-minute uh, episodes, all in black and white. And by pretty much most accounts, it was pretty rubbish. He said, uh, Roger said later that the stars, the only stars of the show were the Huskies. Um, and it was o- the only one of his five television series that never got aired in the UK, never sold to a UK network. And at this point, he basically vowed to never make any more TV. He wanted to get back into the movies. But Warner Brothers had other plans. They wanted him to take over from James Garner on the Western TV series Maverick, um, which Roger didn't want to do. So Maverick, uh, it was a hugely popular, a popular Western series. It had been running since 1957 with James Garner as Brett Maverick. They had already introduced Jack Kelly as uh, Maverick's brother, Bart, to lighten the load on Garner. But uh, James Garner still just wanted out uh, of TV, much like Roger Moore. Let's not forget this is the boom of the TV era. Um, All the stars were sort of, you know, the the studios were ending their their contract system. Everyone was moving into TV, um, but it was sort of seen as a cheaper medium. Still is a little bit, I guess, isn't it? Um, So Garner uh, quit uh, Maverick. Um, and they wanted Roger Moore to come in to play his cousin, Bo. But Roger Moore went on strike, <laughs> uh, instead going to Vegas to um, just get away from it all. Um, but Warner Brothers put him on suspension, and they forced him back to star in the show. Interestingly, they had already offered the role of cousin Bo to Sean Connery, um, but he had turned it down because he felt he would be short-selling himself to American television, and he wanted to be closer to his partner, Diane. So with Maverick, he didn't have a very good experience. He found that they were using recycled scripts from the Alaskans, which he just made very, very recently. Um, He also found that he was wearing James Garner's costumes um, and he quit the show after just 14 episodes. Uh, Again, he wasn't a fan. Warner Brothers then, (laughs) it seems they had it in for Roger Moore. They lined him up to star in another Western series called Tenderfoot. Um, but he just re- flat out refused and was asked to be released from his contract, which he was in 1961. So after seven years in Hollywood, he returned to the UK and said that he would never work in TV again. But before we move on to the next part, um, he in 1961 went to Rome to shoot a film called The Rape of the Sabines. Um, he said it was one of the worst films he ever made. It was never released here, but it was on this film where he met his third wife, Louisa. Um, and they made another film together later called No Man's Land. But having vowed to never work in TV again, what happened? Well, <laughs> they went on to play Simon Templer in The Saint, which ran for seven years <laughs> So on, on TV. So it was a production by Lou Grade. Um, and Roger Moore actually, as we covered in the Money Penny episode, Roger Moore directed nine episodes of it um, throughout its run. It was. It's basically looking looking at it now. It's it's an audition. It's a seven year audition for Bond. It's Rogers Remington Steel. Absolutely, yeah. That's that's a perfect analogy. Yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of uh, all, almost winking at the camera, and he, he wears wears a tux quite a lot, doesn't he? As well, mm. um, he eventually went on to become co owner of the show with Robert S Baker. Um, when the show moved into colour. Um, most of the clothes that were worn by Roger were actually his own. And apparently, apparently during the run, he was offered the role of Bond at least twice, but had to turn it down. Now, there are differing uh, reports of that, whether that's true or not. Um, but we do know that Fleming was certainly interested in Roger Moore being the person that played him. And we covered this again. We covered this in um, the Felix Lighter episode. There's uh, an episode in The Saint called Luella. And that's where another character mistakes Simon Templer for Bond. That's <laughs> actually in the script. Um, and it features David Hedison in that episode as well, who obviously goes on to play Felix Leiter with more in Live and Let Die. He says, I did try to buy the rights when I was doing the television series Ivanhoe. I figured I might not ever work again and I better find something of my own to do. So I tried to get the rights because I felt The Saint would be ideal for television. But at that time, Leslie Charteris, the author, was not interested in letting the rights go for television. Later, Lou Grade bought it and offered it to me, not knowing that I'd tried to buy it before. 
quite oh, quite serendipitous there that yeah. he's, he's tried to try to get it um meant to be yeah exactly so in terms of the the saint i mean i'm not gonna go into much more because again we could do a another podcast on the saint alone but they have a fan club which was created by the author leslie charteris and then when he when he passed away it went then to honorary chairman Sir Roger Moore and Ian Ogilvie, who went on to play Templar in Return of the Saint in the 70s. And I went onto the website just to see if it was still there. It is. If you do want to join, it's £30 for a lifetime membership. Mm. Um, what do you get for that? You get? <laughs> it's, it's still active. Well, it, it, I'm not sure what you do get. You just, I, I guess, maybe they send you a little pin badge. I'd be happy with that. That'd be I'd good, be wouldn't it? Pin badge. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm going to have a look in You're going to join, aren't you? Probably. <laughs> um, so obviously that was a... a a huge part of uh, his his career. Have either of you seen many episodes of The Saint? I've watched a couple. I'd love to sit and do like a night watching Saint episodes. That's what we'll do next time we meet up. I think. Yeah, um, it's not Bond. No, <laughs> oversaturated um, <laughs> at the moment. Um, yeah, I've seen bits of it. I, I've enjoyed what I've seen. I mean, it's Roger, isn't it? So it's just oozes absolute charisma. So mm. suave. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to mention at this point, because it's not on the running order, but there were two films he made in this time, which people may have seen, Crossplot. Have you seen that one? No. Yeah. Uh, that's quite an interesting one. Uh, he plays like a, a talent scout for a modelling agency, and they sort of get mi- mixed up in some sort of uh, weird plot. Um, but Bernard Lee is in that one. Um, mm. And Roger wears a tuxedo at, some, at one point, and it's, uh, it's very, very Bondian in places. Um, and then the other one is the man who haunted himself, um, which Roger considered to be his finest moment. And it's the first film that really was outside of what he usually was asked to do. You know, he was given dramatic stuff. He said it was the film I actually got to act in rather than being just all white teeth and flippant and heroic. Um, mm. Again, you've you've seen that one. Brendan, have you seen that one? I know Wheatley has. I've not seen it, no. no. Sort your life out. It's absolutely okay, terrific. <laughs> what, what's the premise? Well, it's about a man who has a car crash. Um, he's quite a boring man, I seem to remember. He has a car crash, and then after that, he has a quite a dramatic change of personality. Um, I think, and yeah, he's like a he's like a successful businessman. That's right, right. And then another version of him turns up, who's a bit more uh, interesting and dangerous. And there's like, yeah, two versions of him. Um, it's it's really interesting. Yeah. It's like a psychological thriller. Yeah. It's based on a book uh, called The Strange Cage of Mr. Pelham, which is a it's like sort of a, a copy, I would say, of Jekyll and Hyde. Right, right. Um, yeah. But it's 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 sort of like a, I would say Twilight Zone, but it's a bit of a sort of a mystery thing. You don't really know what's going on. Mm. Think, uh, not Sixth Sense, but another of those films that's it's got a bit of a twist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's probably right for a remake, to be honest. Oh no! I mean, it sound, <laughs> sounds what's, good. What's, but... what's, Vin Diesel, what's Vin Diesel doing? Let's Vin get him on Diesel. the phone. <laughs> That's perfect. Both and the, really the Rock cars, but the Rock could play the other version of him. No, they In hate the jungle. They hate each other. <laughs> <laughs> Set it in the jungle, and I'm in. Well, has Ryan Reynolds done a film where he plays two versions of himself? I feel like it's yeah, time. Yeah, it's right? just, yeah, it yeah, came out loads the, of films. The time travel one. It's just come out. Ah, uh, yeah, but that's a yeah. child version, isn't it? I think he's... He plays two versions of himself in that stupid free guy. Oh, yeah. I bet he's done about eight films where he plays two versions. <laughs> get, you get paid twice, don't you? All right, yeah, well, maybe true. it's not one for him then. But Dan Stevens, just get Dan Stevens to do it. He's like the modern, modern Roger Moore, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. It will, it will be Ryan Reynolds, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. The man who sharted himself for yeah. something like that. Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Uh, anyway, what's next? Okay, so from one big TV show to another very similar, relatively big TV show, The Persuaders. Um, so during the filming, uh, during the final series of The Saint, uh, Roger and uh, uh, Bob Baker, they tried out the idea of the buddy formula in one of the episodes, the ex-king of diamonds. And nothing came of the idea. Um, but eventually Bob started talking to, Bob Baker started talking to Lou Grade, who was an impresario at the time um, in 1970, about a TV show based on it. 
um, featuring an English toff and an American boy come good. Um, and it was originally meant to be called The Friendly Persuaders, but they eventually dropped The Friendly because it sounded a bit weird. <laughs> but time moved on and Roger says that he sort of lost interest in it because he was like looking at other things at the time. Uh, and the idea of doing more TV, well, he wasn't that keen on it because he'd just gone into movies. So, um, or he'd, had, he'd previously done movies and he wanted to carry on. Um, but then Lou Grade sold it. So spoke to Roger and they sort of it all kicked off. It's Roger stars alongside Tony Curtis in it. And apparently, and I couldn't really find any verification on this. This is from uh, Roger Ebert's site where um, he, he was meant to have been paid one million for just one series, Roger, uh, which made him the highest paid television actor in the world um, at the time, which is interesting because Persuaders didn't really do that well. Uh, and also they, it didn't... It, it didn't work that well either from the point of view of, of Roger and the team that worked behind it. Because um, according to Lou Grade in his autobiography, it's called Still Dancing, um, they just didn't hit it off very well. They didn't get on very well during the filming of it. Curtis apparently refused to spend time more time on set than was necessary. Whereas Roger, you know, he, he put in everything he had into it. He was working all these all the, all the hours and stuff. And then Curtis wasn't there to, to sort of do it as well. And if you're doing a series where there's two main actors you kind of need both of them to be doing that um uh, on the dvd uh, DVD commentary um apparently it's mentioned that neither roger uh, who was an uncredited co-producer of it and uh robert s baker who was the credited producer they'd never had a contract uh, in place with lou grade for this um they just it's just based on a handshake but the focus, obviously, they were looking at it as being the new saint, essentially. They thought it would have the same sort of level of um, popularity as a saint. It didn't really. It it was really focused on UK and US markets, but it didn't do particularly well in both of those. It it did a lot better in international markets. And it, on when it was premiered on the ITV network, it was beaten by repeats of Monty Python's Flying Circus Ooh. on BBC One. So not as big a deal as they'd, they'd initially thought. So Curtis says that this was because it was um, in the US. He said it was because it was put on the Saturday 10 p.m. slot. But it was actually very successful in some countries, especially Germany, uh, where it was called Dies Wei or The Two, um, because apparently the dubbing was really bad, that it was just really funny to watch. <laughs> uh, so that's that's why they really liked it. Um, I've seen a couple of episodes of The Persuaders. It's funny. It's good. It's interesting. It's an interesting take on the saint idea. Have you have you guys seen it? Again, no. bits of it. It plays on the two main characters. Obviously, it's based on two main characters and the, the differences in their behaviour and stuff. But it is quite funny when you see how Roger plays with Tony Curtis because it's almost like like you'd never imagine Roger Moore to be playing against Tony Curtis in 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 a film because they're so different and it does work quite well. Um, but yeah, it, it yeah did wasn't wasn't ever to reach the heights of the saint no um i read that it, it was going up against mission impossible in the u.s as well and struggled in the on the tv there oh as you'd expect but yes so although persuaders didn't do that well he had bigger fish to fry because james bond came a call in so roger had been on the shortlist to play james bond for dr no but had been considered at the time too soft to play bond um, he was also considered again to star in Diamonds Are Forever, but it was only if Sean Connery didn't agree to do it, which obviously he did. Persuaders came along, did that instead. And then during this time, interestingly, I didn't know this, but Roger joined a company called Brute Productions, which was an offshoot of Fabergé. Um, mm. And this was uh, came through, I think, Cary Grant, who was also on the board, and he became an ambassador of, at large to produce movies. He made a film called Night Watch with Elizabeth Taylor. He produced um, and was also played a hand in the Glenda Jackson film A Touch of Class, which I believe won some Oscars. And he was lining up another film called Getting Rid of Mr. Straker, which is about a detective who wanted to join MI5. It was sort of a spy spoof. But he uh, it kind of got on the back burner when negotiations with Eon all of a sudden escalated when it became clear that Sean Connery wouldn't return for Live and Let Die. Now, we've just done an episode on Live and Let Die, so um, you can always refer to that if you want a bit more detail on this. But in his book, Bond on Bond, uh, he recounts the conversation that he had with Harry Saltzman. Harry Saltzman called him at home. He said, are you alone? 
um, and he, he was calling long distance. He says, you mustn't talk about this, but Cubby agrees with my thinking in terms of you for the next bond. And true to his word, Roger Moore didn't tell anyone until the day he signed his contract and was unveiled to the press. So he signed a three picture deal for a million pounds and was announced as James Bond at the Dorchester Hotel in August 1972. Interestingly, there were people at the time who thought this was not a very good idea. Um, one person, a critic called Alexander Walker, said that Roger Moore taking over as 007 from Sean Connery was like the prefect taking over from the bully. But little did he know that he was about to become the most uh, the actor who played James Bond the most times in the movies. Yeah, it's interesting um, that who was it who said that quote? Alexander White, uh, Alexander Walker, film uh, film critic. Yeah, interesting because one of uh, Roger Moore's early quotes about when he took over the role, he said, my whole reaction was always, he's not a real spy. You can't be a real spy and have everybody in the world know who you are and what your drink is. That's just hysterically funny. So already he's, it's a complete different take, and he, but he's aware of that. And it's that awareness which I think made him a success, as we will discover when we cover each of his films. Um, yeah, so three-year, uh, three-film contract, and we've just covered *Live and Let Die*, and obviously that was a, an attempt to really distance itself from the Connery era. It's surprising, isn't it, because there was nonsense with *Diamonds Are Forever*, and then *Live and Let Die*. It was gritty in places, and then also nonsense. <laughs> so yeah, United Artists saw the dailies of Roger Moore's performance in *Live and Let Die*, and were they were taken with it and they were like right let's let's start production on the next one and so they started straight away with production of the man with the golden gun so by the time we get to the man with the golden gun he's more confident in the role um and obviously he's playing opposite christopher lee who he's he's you know played alongside him aside him quite quite a few times by this point he also says when i stepped into the role i suggested that my longtime tailor cyril castle with whom I'd worked with on The Saint and The Persuaders, would give Bond a more contemporary look for the 70s. Lots of modern colours, sports jackets and trousers became the new norm. Their designs were fashionable, yet also elegant and comfortable. So much so that when Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. were in London, they called to say they thought my clothes in The Man with the Golden Gun were very sharp, especially my dinner suits, then took themselves up to Cyril for new outfits. So we, we haven't had that before, really, with a Bond actor that's that interested in fashion. So obviously Roger's coming along and dictating, really, what he thinks Bond should be wearing. Um, so having quite a, a a large input on on the look of Bond. Then we get to the third one, Spy Who Loved Me, in 1977. And this is one we... I, I doubt there's a podcast where we've not talked about Spy Who Loved Me because everything seemed to come together in that one. Yeah. Um, the opening sequence, the song, the performance of Roger Moore, the villain, everything just seems to to hit on this one, including the director as well. So obviously Lewis Gilbert, who they got back, um, he wanted to fix what he thought the other Roger Moore films had done wrong. He wanted Moore to play Bond, very English, very smooth, with a good sense of humour, which is what he did. He also came up with... So Roger Moore was always adding that humour in as well himself. So right down to the moment where uh, he throws the fish out of the lotus when they come out of the sea. <laughs> yeah, That was his idea. He'd suggested it. Cubby thought it was awful and pushed it too far. Then it was shown at a, um, a screening and uh, it got massive laughs for the one where he throws the fish out and... <laughs> Uh, Cubby was like, yep, yeah, that's that's fine, that, that works, people like it, so they went with it. So he said, when I handed in my licence to kill, I was constantly asked who should replace me. No, I lie, I was asked that question after my my third film, which of course gives an insecure actor a great feeling of being wanted. In fact, I did make a number of suggestions to Cubby, always names of really bad actors, so I looked good by comparison. In the end, I was forced to abandon that idea as I couldn't find any actors worse than me. <laughs> Classic uh, Roger. <laughs> um, so after that um, third film, the contract was up, but they went on a film-by-film uh, film contract. So up next was Moonraker, which it wasn't supposed to be Moonraker, it was meant to be Few Eyes Only, but it was Moonraker purely inspired by the success of Star Wars. Yep, yeah, so they made Moonraker, it a lot of, cost a lot of money, 
was a massive success. But this is where, at this point, there's starting to be sort of, they want to go down a different direction. This is where the cracks start to appear. And I think we've talked about this, where Michael Billington sat waiting (laughs) at this point. So he said, this was after Mirak, he said, I understand that Eon had been holding casting sessions where the would-be James Bonds were tested with a view to replacing me. It didn't bother me as I knew Cubby would never find anyone who would work as cheaply as I did. To be honest, I did want to do another film, but this is all part of the bargaining ploy on Eon's side. Let it be known that they were testing others, so I'd take the deal on the table for fear of losing the part. Fair enough, we all enjoy a game of poker. But Eon and John Glenn, who was to direct the following film, um, they did go through uh, screen tests with many actors. Ian Ogilvy, Lambert Wilson, Lewis Collins, also Michael Billington, he was in there. He said, we searched high and low. I tested no end of people. Roger was in the background with a smile on his face, waiting to be called. And so he, he came out of the 70s, remaining the incumbent Bond. Yeah, so during the 70s, he didn't just do Bond. He did quite a few other films as well, some of which are very good. You've already mentioned The Man Who Haunted Himself. That was uh, 1970, so I won't go into too much detail about that. But one thing he did say in 2011 about The Man Who Haunted Himself is uh, it was a film I actually got to act in rather than just being all white teeth and flippant and heroic. So it was a film that he was very proud of making. Um, I'm sure I've read somewhere that it was his one of his um, like favourite roles that he'd done just because it sort of moved him out of the typecast stuff that he'd been doing already. Um, in 1974, he was in a film called Gold, which I think we all heard of many times in this podcast. Uh, and that was a, a thriller starring uh, Susanna York uh, based on the 1970 novel Goldmine. I think I've seen it many, many years ago. It sort of falls into that whole... Um, that grey grey area of uh, those of similar films from that era, but uh, it's it's a, he plays a character called Rodney Rod Slater, who's a manager of a South African gold mine, who's told by his boss uh, that there's a lot of gold um, uh, to to break through an underground dike into what he is, where there's a load of gold. 1975, he did a film called That Lucky Touch, um, which was a British West German comedy film. Um, with Susanna York again and Shelley Winters. 1976, he did a film called Street People um, and that was an Italian film also known as Executors and The Sicilian Cross um, and it's sort of a crime drama. But interestingly, it was written, um, one of the writers on it was the French Connection screenwriter Ernest Tidyman. Uh, another film, 1976, Shout at the Devil, which is a British war film uh, directed by Peter Hunt uh, and starring Lee Marvin as well. Uh, and that's set in Zanzibar and German East Africa uh, in 1913 to 1915. He was in Sherlock Holmes in New York. I haven't seen this. I don't know why I've not seen this. Um, it's It stars with Patrick McNee. It was made for television, um, sort of, you know, your standard fair mystery film about Sherlock Holmes and... Uh, Dr. Watson 1978 Wild Geese probably must be top three of his films that aren't Bond that people know of I think um, when it comes to Roger Uh, definitely one of those films that was always on at Christmas Uh, it's a 1978 war film um, and it had some big names in it Richard Harris Richard Burton Hardy Kruger 1979 Escape to Athena hadn't heard of this one actually Uh, it's a British adventure comedy war film uh, was Teddy Savalas, David Niven, Stephanie Powers, um, Richard Roundtree, Sonny Bono, and Elliot Gould. Great cast. Yeah, surprised I'm not heard of that one. And then 1979, and this is a big one, North Sea Hijack, um, which is really... Have you seen... I, I thought you've seen it, Yes, you? for a long time ago. Very, very interesting film that Roger did because the, he re, it was, the main focus of this was really getting away from typecasting. So instead of playing the hero or the like the handsome guy that saves the day he's if you remember he's sort of like a introverted um hermit type character with a big beard uh got loads right. of cats uh and i think it's it's uh, all about uh, offshore oil rigs or something like that but it basically gets taken over by terrorists and they realize that there's one man there who's like in those oil rigs and it's but um his character 
and he goes in and just starts. It's like it's like a Thinking Man Steven Seagal film. It sounds like <laughs> uh, I, I I can't remember that one, but I, I I think I watched it about ten years ago, and he is fantastic in it. Definitely does break the um, the typecasting that he was probably worried about up until that point. So there you go. That's the seventies for uh, Roger. And this was Roger at his peak, right when he was Bond. Um... And oh, yeah. I imagine he had yeah. the pick of the roles, really, at this stage in his career. Um, yeah. But that d- didn't really get, I don't know, um, interesting, the films that he made. I don't think any of them are, like, as big as some of the ones that, say, Connery made while he was Bond. You know, Connery was making Marnie with Hitchcock, but um, different... Yeah, it doesn't, different... certainly doesn't seem like he was picking... I mean, they're all quite similar in style. If they're, If you're talking about films these days, they're... They're, they are the sort of films that do really well at the cinema and then sort of disappear afterwards. Um, those sort of big, big screen hitters. But there's, I mean, there's not a lot of at the time. Obviously, war films were massive as well, so they were like your Marvel films at the time. But yes, so, yeah, yeah. Def, definitely not picking up the Marnies and things like that. No, right. It's the moment you've all been waiting for. Let's talk about tax, baby. Yes, finally. So, in 1978, Roger Moore sold his home in Buckinghamshire to live in taxile on the continent as he did for the rest of his life and interestingly it was at this time also that james bond went into tax exile as well because the next film they made was moonraker and that was made in france again due for tax reasons uh, and this was because of the labor government at the time under james callahan was just basically taxing top earners really heavily he said roger did at this point we were taxed at up to 98 percent on unearned income so you would never be able to save enough to ensure that you had any sort of livelihood if you didn't work. Uh, famously, Michael Caine and Sean Connery had both recently also moved abroad due to the high taxes in the UK. And Roger, this is interesting, I thought, he, uh, while looking for somewhere to move to from the UK, he went to visit Kurt Jürgen's chalet in Gestard. Kurt Jürgen's obviously being the villain from um, Spy Who Loved Me. He invited to stay in his chalet in Gestard and that's really took his fancy. He really liked it there um, and decided to uh, set up home there. Um, and he was also, re- he had homes um, from that point on in Monaco, uh, a few in France and then also Switzerland. Um, so talking about it in, in later life, he was interviewed in 2011 and he said, it's not about tax. That's a serious part of it. I come back to England often enough not to miss it, to see the changes, to find some of the changes good, he said. I paid my taxes at the time that I was earning a decent income, so I've already paid my due. Um, but, you know, I think as when we spoke to Gareth Owen, Roger's assistant, um, a few episodes back, you know, I think Roger was sort of a little bit put out that he had to live in exile because of the tax reasons. I think he felt very proud to be... British, English, um, loved being here, spent a lot of time at Pinewood, obviously had his office there. Um, And in his books, you know, there's often talk about him missing his home comforts and how he would have like, you know, he would miss beef dripping and he would have cupboards with pies. Yeah, his pies, his his, his, uh, pork pies, sausage rolls. Um, He would have cupboards with stuffing and gravy at home. He liked to make a roast dinner, all that sort of stuff. So... Although he was living this sort of jet set international lifestyle uh, in tax exile, I think he his home, his heart was always here. But yeah, I mean, even after his death, he ended up being buried in Switzerland because of the tax reasons, which is really sad, really, when mm. you think about it. You know, the country's making it so difficult for the high earners like this to to to, to be able to earn that they um, that they set up shop elsewhere. I mean, that's like, I guess nowadays that's why you know you have the nom doms. Um, status uh, which still happens right people still don't want to live here to pay the taxes Mm. how uh did you say 98 pence in the pound yeah so they're earning 2p yeah every pound they make (laughs) yeah yeah no one no wonder they left it's that's that's ridiculous yeah and obviously i mean we know we joke about talking about tax all the time but it did have a big impact you know john barry Mm. did the same thing he was earning too much money to be able to live here so he moved yeah. away, as did Sean Connery, as did Roger Moore, as did the James Bond films. Um, so, 
it was a big deal. Um, and what, what is it they say? It's two things in life are unavoidable, death and taxes. So, um, yep. yeah, mm. unfortunately, you have to pay the tax man and you have to pay the reaper. But they, Sage words. Sage words, indeed. <laughs> words to live by, I believe. Um, so let's uh, let's take a break at this point and we will return with our second half of the Roger Moore episodes uh, soon where we will talk about the 1980s James Bond films that Roger made. Um, interesting that he made three, um, sorry, four James Bond films in the 1970s and three in the 1980s. Um, so he sort of straddles two two distinct eras there. And obviously the ones he made in the 80s were all with John Glenn as well. So uh, I think you can sort of mm. put a dividing line between the films at that point. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I suppose Craig's the only other Bond to really do that, straddle the couple of decades. A couple of decades, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, but times don't, times haven't really changed as much as... Only because we're uh, older. Yeah, that's no, true. No, but that two, 2006 to... Two th- oh, mind you, yeah. Didn't have a smartphone in 2006, did they? No, Just, when, when we look back at like the 80s and stuff, we think, oh, it's a very distinct time. But nowadays, young people look back at the noughties and they go, oh, I remember the noughties when iPhones were slightly different. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've just proved me right. <laughs> well, that's because I'm an old person. <laughs> Fine. Um, um, yeah, I think um, there, there is a dividing line. There's also, a, it's a different direction, but that is, it's because John Glenn got his team in place, didn't he? That's the other thing. Yeah. So it's Roger Moore is the the only one that's essentially the same, really. Everything else is sort of new, because they the for your eyes only was a whole new direction, wasn't it? That was the point that like, we covered in that episode. They wanted to go back to the books. Hmm. Yeah, and it yeah. does take a slightly different different path, doesn't it? So you got for your eyes mm-hmm. only, your octopusy, and a view to a kill. Um, yeah, be a bit more espionage heavy than he has been used to, but. Um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting stuck into those episodes. Um, and it's been really fascinating learning more about Roger's life. There's so much stuff in here that I just didn't know about, which um, yeah. hopefully the listeners will have enjoyed as well. Well, but- in the week in the week gap that they've got, I, I suggest they seek out, if they want to know more, seek out some of the books because there's so much on him. Maybe like- just pick one. <laughs> there's a lot to get through between <laughs> yeah, episodes. By all means, don't read, a, don't read all four books in a week. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, there's there's lots. Bond on Bond is excellent. Uh, what, yeah, that's, that's my really yeah. really good one. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So uh, thank you very much for listening to this episode. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed learning a bit more about Roger Moore. I know we did. Um, if people want to get in touch with the show to share their thoughts and memories on Sir Roger, how do they get us on email? Podcast at jamesbond uk and on uh, social media at jamesbond a to z on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. As you know, we are on coffee now. So if you want to support the show by uh, buying us a coffee, which we will spend on vodka martinis and mint juleps, you can uh, give us £3 and that will go a long way to supporting the show at ko-fi.com forward slash James Bond A to Z. It's a one-off fee if you wanted to pay that. That would be much appreciated. Uh, Or you can do it as a monthly uh, donation, which is uh, equally well received. And... That on that note, uh, it just leaves me to say that the James Bond A to Z podcast will return next week. See you next time. Ciao. The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy, and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley, with music by Tom Ingemels, and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. My name's Bond. James Bond. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.